Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're going to be talking about the first topic in our new series on Baptist distinctives, biblical authority. This will be a seven-part series because there are seven letters in the name Baptist. It's perfect. Actually, it's Baptists with an S at the end to add in uh, to get the right number. It is a convenient way. I was talking to somebody this week, uh, sung, mm-hmm. and I said, Baptist, well, what about this thing? Oh, you were there. And oh, I said, that? yeah. And he's like, oh, that's helpful. It's the letters. I'm like, yeah. It works out really nicely, actually. So, yeah, so for the next seven weeks, seven episodes, we'll do, uh, cover this, the seven Baptist distinctives. Potentially interrupted because oh, in those sure. seven I, weeks I'm gonna have a baby. So oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, when is your wife due? Uh, she's due January 10th, but but they're probably, probably gonna do early, so sometime around Christmas. Years. Christmas, it's a Christmas miracle. Yes, or will be. Then I'll be hosting by myself and editing by myself. It'll go great. It will not happen at all. <laughs> There's no way I'm gonna do that by myself. We may have to double record some episodes. And back them up. Yeah, we can do that. And if any controversies erupt, it's true, we'll man. have to cover those. Could preempt. Baptist history often has new yes. controversies <laughs> <laughs> from old dead guys. Uh, we don't always do Baptist distinctives. Or we don't always do Baptist history. But I've talked to a lot of Baptists, independent Baptists, Southern Baptist. Uh, free will Baptist, and there's a fair amount of, dis- of disagreement or confusion or ignorance on what it means to be a Baptist. I was talking to one person recently, and I, they said, well, Baptist is, and then they proceeded to describe a very specific kind of Baptist. Right. And I, I was like, well, you described some Baptist churches, but you're not describing Baptist. So when you talk about historical movement, you go back in history and you look at the beliefs that they held, and you use that as a litmus test. So traditionally, there have been seven distinctives, and the reason there's seven is because a distinctive is not everything the group believes. It's what sets them apart from other groups. So when you're describing Baptists, you don't start with, they are humans, because everyone's a human. Um, unless there was an alien race, which there are, could be aliens. Correct, I'm sure. Do you, do you think there could be? I'm I'm not. I You're on the record. I'm on the record. Actually, I can edit this out, so it doesn't matter. Do not edit this out. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I haven't. I don't okay. give it much thought because I don't think it's that important. Well, great com- Great commission still applies. <laughs> so we'll what convert. Is it, what what word is translated word? Is it is it gaze or is it cosmos? No, I'm thinking of the creatures. To all creatures. Oh, okay. I thought yeah, you were saying to the, the whole world. world. Yeah. Um, I didn't think about that part. I'm just, well, I'm assuming they come to this earth. Gotcha. Okay, so we so the Area 51 missions trip. <laughs> we need to plant a Baptist church in Area 51, mm-hmm. and since all creatures, they would become Baptist. So the Baptist distinctives are distinguishing us from other similar religious groups, and if you leave one of the Baptist distinctives off there's a good chance you'll be matched up with another group that is not Baptist. Okay, so there are seven of them. Well, five to eight. It depends on how you define them. But we go with seven because it matches the Baptist acronym. And when you hit all seven of them, you see a Baptist. 
Now, not all Baptists are consistent. There's some atypical or irregular Baptists, but we're going with sort of a generic historical perspective. But there are some prerequisites, like being a human, for now. Uh, so before you're a Baptist, you have to be other things first. And this is a big deal in 20th century as liberalism arose, because there's plenty of Baptists who are liberals. And so the conservative Baptists and the liberal Baptists argued, who's a Baptist? And so in the process of, of figuring this out, Baptists are, first of all, before they're Baptists, they're Orthodox, which means they hold to the creeds, ancient creeds. So, for instance, in the Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, the Orthodox Creed from 1679, under Article 38, it says, this is defining what they believe a Baptist is, the three creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius Creed, and the Apostles' Creed, as they are commonly called, ought thoroughly to be received and believed. For we believe they may be proved by most undoubted authority of Holy Scriptures and are necessary to be understood of all Christians. So in their Baptist statement of faith, they said you have to believe in the creeds. In other words, they're orthodox. They don't believe that Jesus was created and other unorthodox things. So orthodox creeds is just a basic Christianity, Nicene Creed, the uh, the ancient ecumenical creeds. It states just sort of the generic, this is what it takes to be a Christian. Uh, so you have to be orthodox to be a Baptist. But many others are Orthodox, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, uh, so on and so forth. Then you have to be Evangelical. Evangelical means, basically, you believe that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. Uh, this was fleshed out in the Reformation. So the Protestant Reformation was when this Evangelical idea. So the Catholics are Orthodox. Like, they believe in the creeds. But we don't believe they're a true church. So the Reformation, why not? If they hold to the creeds, why are they not a true church? It's because they weren't evangelical. And so those were brought out in the five souls. We talked about those before. Faith alone, Christ alone, God's grace alone, Scripture alone, and God's glory alone. So it's the necessity of the new birth by the Holy Spirit with no works involved. And the necessity and completeness of Christ's work. So if you don't believe those things, you've missed a prerequisite to being a Baptist. But of course... Presbyterians believe those, Lutherans, Methodists. So those aren't what make you a Baptist. You just have to be those to become a Baptist. And that's why it's dangerous. We've talked about this quite a few times, but it's still an issue. If you reject being a Protestant, you're rejecting these Protestant beliefs, and that undermines the faith. So Baptists are Orthodox Evangelical Protestants. And as Dr. Nettles said in his book, Lack of historical awareness will lead a denomination to walk down some of the same roads they have walked before. That's why we're doing this podcast. And yes, Baptists are a denomination. People say, we're independent Baptists. Independent Baptists are even more of a denomination than the average Baptist. (laughs) And I stick by that. And I've got 30 years of experience and church discipline across churches to prove it. Okay, so... That's prerequisites. So what does it take to distinguish you from all these other churches who are also Orthodox and Evangelical? And so we have the Baptist distinctives. And the first one is biblical authority. And biblical authority is why Baptists had the nerve to defy the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and all these other churches and start their own churches. First Baptist, uh, Hell was his book, 
was it's amazing how bold it was considering he was the first one to talk about Baptist theology like that because of his belief in biblical authority as the sole authority. So Baptists, because they're, they're a newer Protestant denomination, needed a really solid foundation to be able to become nonconformist and independent and then start their own denomination. Or you, if, you, if you want to be more historical, recover it from the New Testament. So the first distinctive of Baptists is biblical authority. Uh, the Bible as the sole or as the highest and only infallible authority. And that's pretty easy to see from history. Yeah, it was Baptist authority, or Baptist dependence on the authority of Scripture that gave them the backbone to say that the Church of England had the baptism of Rome, which means they had the baptism of the beast. It should be So the baptism of the Church of England should be cast in the same place where the beast was. And they need to recover baptism from the New Testament. And we'll get to this a little bit later, but... Sometimes we dismiss this sort of authority of Scripture as obvious, but it plays directly into the kind of preaching you see out of independent Baptist churches, out of Southern Baptist churches, out of non-denominational churches, where practically they say they believe in the authority of Scripture, but then their preaching doesn't reflect it. So we'll get into that later. But to set it up, here's what Baptists say. 1644, London Confession. The rule of this knowledge, faith, and obedience concerning the worship and service of God and all other Christian duties is not man's inventions, opinions, devices, laws, constitutions, or traditions unwritten whatsoever, but only the word of God contained in the canonical scriptures. Pretty clear. In this written word of God, in this written word, God hath plainly revealed whatsoever he hath thought needful for us to know, believe, and acknowledge. Touching the nature of and office of Christ, in whom all the promises are yea and amen to the praise of God. So they're saying right up front, this is it. The rule of knowledge, faith, obedience, all worship, all service, all of the Christian duties is contained in the word of God. Uh, then 1689, London, Second London Baptist Confession. So this is what, 45 years later. They actually rearrange the order and start with the scripture. So it's obvious that it's becoming more prominent. Plus, they copied from the uh, Westminster Confession. <laughs> so they say, chapter 1, subsection 1. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And the authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. And then one more, Orthodox Creed, 1660. The authority of Holy Scripture dependeth not upon the authority of any man, but only upon the authority of God. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man. Which sets a pretty clear line between what Baptists require and what they don't. And no decrees of popes or councils or writings of any person whatsoever, whether they be Baptist or otherwise, I added that, are of equal authority with the sacred scriptures, of which there has never been any doubt of their verity and authority in the Protestant churches of Christ to this day. So it's pretty clear. Baptists believe in the authority of scripture. And John Gill, 1771, most, most famous Baptist of that era, pastored it. 
Spurgeon, what would become Spurgeon's church 100 years later. He said, let it be observed that not the matter of the scriptures only, but the very words in which they are written are of God. So that's why we believe the verbal inspiration. Do you want to define verbal inspiration a little bit more just in case anybody doesn't know the term? So verbal inspiration meaning God chose the words. Right. So not an idea. No, not there. just the concepts, but the actual words. And in fact, here's one from Charles Octavius Booth, who was an African-American theologian, which is important because there's a debate now about inspiration and inerrancy being sort of a Western European idea created by a bunch of white guys. And so here's a non-white theologian who says, Here we are plainly taught that God communicated his thoughts, his mind, to holy men who wrote and spoke as his mind dictated in them, and as the Holy Spirit moved and superintended them. This word is as perfect as that which his finger wrote in stone, or his voice uttered on the mount. Talk about Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. That's pretty clear. That's verbal inspiration. Uh, We need not expect any further revelation. It was designed to be a complete treasury of heavenly instruction, our only and all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. So that's from a different tradition than the previous one. Yeah, so verbal inspiration. God chose the words, gave it to men. The method, don't need to worry about that. That's not a bad distinctive. The result being the Bible is the words of God, the words of the Bible are the word of God. And therefore they are as authoritative as God is. That's what Baptists believe. Now, a little bit more controversial today among Baptists, independent Baptists at least. And we go back to our previous conversation about the King James. Baptists have historically believed that the authority was in the Bible. So the question is, where's the Bible? With all these translations, which one's the Bible? So they actually addressed this prior to all the translations. So here's John Gill, who died in 1771. He was the pastor of what would become Metropolitan Tabernacle for 51 years. And generally agreed upon to be the sort of most influential, learned, devout theologian of that century, 1700s. Obviously, King James only, because there was nothing else. Geneva Bible, I suppose, but no one was using that anymore. Bishop's Bible. Bishop's Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible. (laughs) Yes. But everyone was like, yeah, we got a copy of those, but we don't ever use them. So he says, let it be observed that the scriptures are the very words of God. This is to be understood of the scriptures as in the original languages in which they were written and not of translations. And then, this is funny. He predicts the argument. Unless it could be thought that the translators of the Bible were under the divine inspiration also in translating and were directed of God to use the words they have rendered the original by. But this is not reasonable to suppose. We would call that double inspiration. Yeah. And he's saying it's not reasonable to suppose that God chose the original words and then rechose them with the translation. He goes on, the books of the Old Testament were written chiefly in the Hebrew language and the New Testament in Greek, in which languages they can only be reckoned canonical and authentic. Only the original exemplar is authentic and not translations. This guy, like, understand the context. He is the leading mind. This is not controversial. This is just sort of standard, generic beliefs of Baptists at this time. And in every trans, so he says, and to the Bible in its original languages is every translation to be brought and by it to be examined, tried and judged and to be corrected and amended. And if this was not the case, 
we should have no certain and infallible rule to go by. This is why in translations it's a big deal. For it must be either all the translations together, or some one of them, not all of them. For then the contest would be between one nation and another, which it should be, whether English, Dutch, French, and so on. And could one be agreed upon, it could not be read and understood by all. So the papists, they plead for their Vulgate Latin version. So the argument he's making, he says, where's the, where's the sole authority? He's saying it's in the originals. If it's not in the originals, then which translation is it? And if that's the sole authority, then other people in other languages have to use that. But they can't. Which goes back to the Vulgate. That's why he mentions the Vulgate. What was the problem? What was Wycliffe trying to do? He said, we need a Bible we can understand. Mm-hmm. And the papist said, nope. The Roman church said, only the Vulgate. And he's like, no one can understand the Vulgate. And it's not even the originals. It's translation. And so the translations are so that you can read the original in your own language. But he's saying you have to always go back to the original to test it out. This is not modernism. Here, this is a compromise. This is old paths. This is the 1770, right? Body of Practical Divinity by John Gill. It's not sort of some sort of... It's not Josh Tice coming out of Las Vegas with his new idea, which is what a lot of people are thinking, that he, he sort of dug this up and... I don't know if they blame me or not, but he's more famous than I am, so we'll blame him. <laughs> this is old. This is hundreds of years old. That's what Babs was saying more. And if you don't know, recognize John Gill, let's look at his successor, uh, Spurgeon. 1892. He, well, he died in 1892. So again, this is before. He said, a man to comment well. So Spurgeon saying when you he comment means preach or teach. A man to comment well should be able to read the Bible in the original. Every minister should aim at a tolerable proficiency both in the Hebrew and the Greek. I've heard a lot of people say that's unreasonable. We can't speak Hebrew and Greek, so therefore God must have given us a translation. But what school does Spurgeon go to? He taught he school was taught of hard knocks. School of hard knocks. He was taught by his pastor. Right. I think it was grandfather and pastor. So he addresses this. Now this is an eighteen it's it's his book on lectures to my students. I don't know exactly when it was written, but it was before the 1890s. He said, really, the effort of acquiring a language is not so prodigious that brethren of moderate abilities abilities should so frequently shrink away from the attempt. Now, Mark, you're a man of moderate abilities. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Are you a trained theologian? No. Have you been to seminary? No. What do you do for a living? I work in IT. Can you read Greek? Slowly. You can do it, though, with the lexicon. Yeah. Um. Do you think it's reasonable to expect pastors to know Greek? Let me rephrase that question. Because expect is a high bar. Do you think it's reasonable to urge regular pastors to learn Greek? Yeah, I mean, I think especially now, more than ever, the variety and availability of tools. Yeah, so actually Spurgeon goes on to speak to your situation. A minister ought to attain enough of these languages to be at least able to make out a passage by the aid of a lexicon. So as not to be, so as to be sure that he is not misrepresenting the spirit of God in his discoursings. This is 1800s. No internet. You didn't. It was very difficult to get information the same way we do. Currently, how easy is it to learn Greek? It's very easy. In fact, you were just talking about a resource. Promote that. Maybe we'll get money from uh, what's his name. Yeah. So if you go, there's a resource called Daily Dose of Greek. Um, so every day five days a week i think it is he does he translates one verse um 
And he works through books of the Bible doing that. Right. Teaching you how to do it. Yes. Um, Plumber. And, yeah. More importantly, he also has a, I think it's 30 video, mm. maybe about five minutes per video. Basically like a free semester of Greek. So five, so 15 minutes a day, mm-hmm. free, in your office, in your home, on your phone, you can learn Greek. That's reasonable. Uh, it's difficult, but a lot of things are difficult. To be honest, I think a lot of our listeners went to a school that didn't teach them well, especially in the areas of Greek. But they spent so much effort in that school that now they're out of it. There's an idea of like, I don't have any more energy to put into education when it's really like, well, maybe energy into the right kind of education would be different. So Spurgeon said it. He urged his preachers to learn Greek. He said an average person can do it. It's even easier now. It's it's even easier than when I went to school. Yeah. And that was only 15 years ago. You can buy a Greek grammar for like five dollars watch plumber teach you 15 minutes a day and you can get a reasonable knowledge of it and a lot of guys are gonna say like i don't have time for that well spurgeon would disagree he says a man to to teach well should be able to read the bible in the original now maybe spurgeon's wrong um he could have been maybe john gill's wrong maybe john broadus is wrong Maybe all these guys are wrong. Uh, I was actually reading W.B. Riley, who pastored in the 50s, 60s, independent Baptist. And he talked about going to the originals. Uh, Lee Robertson read Greek. John O. Rice could, could work with the Greek. It is the Bible. So the traditional Baptist understanding of biblical authority is that it's found in the original languages, which means there's a huge uh, incentive to learn the original languages since that's where God spoke. And I think maybe... Maybe sort of the rise of populism and anti-intellectualism in the past 150 years that pushes people away from learning things that they're not sort of naturally trained to do, foreign languages. In America, no one speaks foreign languages in America. I was just talking to uh, the pastor's wife who visited us, and she speaks Korean, English, German, and French. And that was just normal for her. She grew up as a missionary. She's from Korea. She grew up as a missionary and and. French-speaking Africa, and then she went to high school in Germany. When you go to foreign countries, they almost always speak multiple languages. But in America, one language. I mean, how, how far do you have to drive in America before you hit somewhere where they're not speaking English? Exactly. I guess some of our listeners in Texas might not have, or California might That's not true. have us very far. But the, Baptist, so the American concept the past 150 years, especially, has been anti-intellectual which is sort of anti-elitism. Uh, multiple times I've been told it's not a seminary, it's a cemetery. I'm getting not getting a PhD, I'm getting a post-hole digging degree. It's just the idea of like school that ruins preachers and you can't trust educated people. They're too smart for their own good. Um, well, isn't it a, is that a reaction to liberalism that was legitimately in a lot of areas? Of yeah, that's true. So especially Southern Baptist. Their seminaries were taken over to a large degree by well-educated liberals. And so there was a maybe a popular reaction against these educated liberals by conservatives. However, that's not – you don't become an 
uneducated conservative. You become a well-educated conservative instead of a well-educated liberal. The education is not the problem. So historically, Baptist pastors, when they had the ability, not all, of course, there were large traditions of anti-intellectualism throughout Baptist history, but these like Spurgeon, Gill, they said, if you have the opportunity, which most of you do, you should learn some Greek so you can go back to the original. And this is why. So Spurgeon says, uh, so as to be sure that he is not misrepresenting the spirit of God in his discoursings, but is as nearly as he can judge, giving forth what the Lord intended to reveal by the language employed, which is Greek and Hebrew. So that's from the Prince of Preachers. So when we talk about biblical authority, we're talking about the authority found in the Bible in the original languages, which was the fundamentalist position too. This is a translations. It's more of a recent thing. So when we want to, I think it was Spurgeon who said that Baptists, that the language of Baptists is the Greek, that we can be beat by translations, but we can't be, be beat in the Greek. So when you look at the Bible, it says baptize. So Presbyterians are like, yeah, I mean, sprinkle, you know, or pour, and Baptists are like, well, let's look at the original language. What does baptize mean in Greek, not in English? And there you find immerse. That's why uh, Adonai Judson, I believe, became a Baptist, because he looked it up in the original languages. So, how many more words are like that? Maybe nothing as dramatic as that. But that's, you know, Baptist, that's our very name, comes from a Greek word. So, we should be encouraging people and giving them resources, and that fit, that daily dose of Greek is a perfect, easy, accessible way to get to the very words of God. If you're not going to do that, just get some good commentaries, critical commentaries, and they'll do the work for you and just give you, like the A.T. Robertson. Yeah. Um what was that called? Word pictures AT, in the New Testament. Yeah, A.T. Yeah. Robertson's word pictures of the New Testament. So he does the work for you. Which is, I believe, out of copyright because a lot of a lot of apps have that available as an additional yeah. resource you can get for free. Yeah, yeah. so that's a free resource. There's just no excuse. Uh, but the most good commentaries are going to do some Greek work so you can look behind the, the English language. Or if you're in another country, the Spanish language, Spanish listeners or missionaries to Spanish countries – and I've talked to them. They're going to a second language. They can't go back to the English. That doesn't help. They got to go back to the originals. So missionaries have any. Honestly, if you're a missionary and you can't read Greek and Hebrew, maybe if you're going to like France, Germany, that has a lot of resources. But if you're going to another country that doesn't have a lot of resources, it should almost be a requirement to be able to read the originals since you're translating straight into the language. So the authority of scripture practically affects what we do with scripture. And I think preaching is the most obvious area. And I think it's the most obvious way that you can see Baptists departing from the authority of Scripture. I don't think any of our listeners are liberal in the sense of they don't believe the Bible's true. But liberalism partly was saying the Bible must be understood in modern terms. So we read modern science, then look at the Bible, see if it's true, which is obviously backwards. And conservatives went the other way. Fundamentalists went the other way. But what's happening now and, and has been happening for decades is practically the same thing. You just give lip service to the authority and inspiration of Scripture, but then you ignore it. And so, for instance, the pastor, the Baptist pastor, maybe Baptist in name only, who preached out the West that conference on the West Coast on the prodigal son. Have you heard that? I haven't. He said, "We're going to look at the, the prodigal son." But we're going to look at what's not in the text. Oh, okay. I did hear this. And then he proceeds to talk about the mother of the prodigal son and the preacher of the prodigal son and like the dog of the prodigal son. Basically preached an entire sermon specifically saying, we're going to talk about what's not in the scriptures. 
So where's his authority? It's not the scriptures. So you, and this happens. That's the worst example. But that was at a conference with thousands of preachers, many of them who of whom may be listening to this podcast. I know I have family members over there. So I mean, I don't want to be too critical, but we need to be honest. If you're not preaching the Bible, you should be called out for that. Just as when Shaler Matthews said the Bible wasn't true, or he, he said it had to be understood in modern sense, or when uh, Fosdick gets up and says, shall the fundamentalists win, that the Bible is too strict, and we call them out. Joe Olstein gets up and preaches a sort of feel-good gospel. Well, when Baptists preach things that are not Bible, we should call them out because it's destructive. It's not just sort of like, oh, you know, they got lights on their stage, or they're not wearing the clothes I would wear. It's like, no, they're literally undermining the very Baptist faith. So here's something from John Broadus, who wrote a book on preaching in 1870. He says, if we take a passage in a sense entirely foreign to what the sacred writer designed, as indicated by his connection, then as we use it, the phrase is no longer a passage of scripture at all. It is merely words of scripture, used without authority to convey a different meaning, just as truly as if we had picked out words from a, from a Bible concordance and framed them into a sentence. And that's why you hear a lot of preaching. So he gets up and he says words like prodigal son and the father and the brother. But he's not talking about what the Bible actually says. So he's not preaching the Bible. In the same way, if you take words out of context. So I've heard preachers say, you have a lot of Bible in your sermon. And they'll go and just quote 10, 20 verses. But they're not in context. They're not used correctly. They're not understood. And so what Broadus is saying 100 years ago, 150 years ago, he goes, if we use them foreign to what the sacred writer designed, the phrase is no longer a passage of scripture at all. It's just Bible words that you've rearranged and practically undermines the authority of scripture, which practically means you're not acting like a Baptist. You're acting like a liberal or, a, I guess, a, a Catholic, maybe, relying on tradition. And we who are Baptist and really just Bible believers should push strongly back against that. So when you preach a sermon as a faithful Baptist, you'll take the words of Scripture and you'll give them to the people as authoritative. And you'll say, "This is thus saith the Lord. The Bible says, God says, you should do it. Not because I said it, because the Bible said it. So for a Baptist, the Bible is always the starting point. But unfortunately, Baptists have gotten away from that. So that example of the guy on California, but where he learned that from. So here's one example. This is from Teaching on Preaching by Jack Hiles which he was the most prominent independent Baptist and one of the most prominent preachers for decades, 30 years. And so in his book on preaching, chapter 1, which, so, so he's sort of given the one great truth of a sermon, he summarizes it this way. It is the opinion of this preacher that the most effective preaching is that of determining before you choose a topic or a truth where you want to go. Picture the invitation. Decide what you want people to do, then find the truth that can be used as a vehicle to take the hearers to, to the desired goal. Where's the biblical authority? It's all starting with the pastor. Yeah, so he says step one, he actually lays it out specifically. Step one, picture the invitation and the one thing you want to happen. So who's the authority? The pastor. He decides what he wants to happen. Secondly, decide what truth will make it happen. He doesn't start with the truth. He starts with the goal and then just finds the truth. So the truth, he actually never says the Bible in this whole chapter. 
he just talks about truth, which I assume he means, the most gracious reading is he means biblical truth. He never actually says that. So step one, picture the invitation and the one thing you want to happen. Step two, decide what truth will make it happen. Making truth the handmaiden of the goal. Write it down and look at it. Decide what you think that truth will make happen. When convinced both ways, decide on the truth to be delivered. So the authority in that situation is the goal. It's the pragmatic response that you want from people. It's not the scripture. And that's what happens when you give up on practical authority of scripture. You choose the topic or truth where you want to go. You decide what people want to do, and then you go to the scripture and you find it. And so that book, you know, it sold a lot of copies. It defined a lot of preaching. For most of our listeners, they've been influenced by it. So if we want to be faithful Baptists, we need to go back to what Baptists have always believed, which is take the Bible as authoritative and give it to the people. So here's what F.B. Meyer said in 1912. He was a Baptist in London. He said, this is the most pertinent point for our present purpose. This is a book on preaching. The Holy Spirit's power proceeds along the line of the word of God as the electric message along the wires. It is his sword, the life-giving seed which he has vitalized, the word in which the word is incarnated. Through long centuries he has been at work, communicating to prepared natures the thoughts of God, and naturally he avails himself of his prerogative. In other words, and this goes back to the very beginning of the Bible, how did God create the world? He spoke. The word created the world. How did he create his people? He went to Mount Sinai and he said, here's the law, written by his own finger, the word of God. So he creates Israel, creates the world through the word. He creates Israel through the word. When he comes to make the church, he is the word, come into the world. And then he says to, in, in 1 Peter, he says, you have been born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. So when God wants to create something good, he does it through the word. So we as preachers and we as teachers and Christians, we want to build the church, grow the church. It's through the word. There was no secondhand help when God created the world or Israel or Christians. And so that's what F.B. Meyer is saying. He's saying that the Holy Spirit power, which creates Christians, sanctification, church growth, travels through the word of God. So he goes on. The ministry, therefore, which is most carefully based on Scripture and honors Scripture and saturates itself with Scripture, is the ministry which the Spirit of Truth can cooperate with in the most perfect abandonment. And that's what Baptists believe. God works by the Spirit through the Word. And so a faithful Baptist preacher will take the Word, faithfully give it to the people, and then he'll see his church grow. Maybe not numerically, but certainly spiritually. Now, there are other Baptist distinctives, but they all fall apart without that one. So the hope for this is that we will draw from Baptist theology and tradition to make the Bible authoritative both in our doctrine, statement of faith, and in our practice of ministry. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcastandhistoryandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can also join the Facebook group we have. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.